If you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn in them to Acts 2. Acts chapter 2. Today we continue our series in the book of Acts entitled, To the Ends of the Earth. Our text today is Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. Uh, It's been a little while since I've gone long on my time, so I'll just say that (laughs) at the outset here. we've We've got a long text here, so try to stick with me. Yet as we, uh, as we dig into this text, it is so rich. And I believe that the Holy Spirit that we read about here in Acts 2, as we explore this passage, he wants to minister to each and every one of us in a wonderful way and encourage and strengthen our hearts. So again, the, our text today is Acts chapter 2, verses 14 to 41. For the sake of context, because this, this really is a unified narrative, we're going to go ahead and begin reading in verse 1. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. This is God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together. And they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, and Medes, and Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Verse 14, this begins our text today. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, 
And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David, David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you have not abandoned my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses." Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. May God bless the preaching of his word to us today and write its eternal truth upon our hearts. By way of review and for the sake of context, in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, just prior to his ascension to the Father, Jesus commanded his disciples to not depart Jerusalem, but instead to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. He also promised them, chapter 1, verse 6, 
Please look there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When Jesus finished speaking these words, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight as he ascended back into heaven to be with his heavenly father. And the twelve, well, they did what Jesus told them to do. They waited and they prayed. Along with a number of other disciples, numbering about 120 total, they waited for the Holy Spirit and they prayed. When the day of Pentecost came, what Jesus promised would happen, it did in fact happen. A sound from heaven came, a sound like rushing wind. All 120 of the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they all spoke in tongues. That is, they spoke in other languages, other human languages, as the Holy Spirit miraculously gave them utterance. At the time this momentous event took place, the city of Jerusalem was jam-packed. It was jam-packed because Jewish people from all over the world had traveled to Jerusalem for the annual feast of Pentecost. So when this miracle happened, when the sound like a mighty rushing wind came, that sound wasn't just heard by the 120. It was heard by many, likely thousands. As later in the text, we see 3,000 were converted to Christ as the result of this unusual event, along with Peter's anointed preaching of the gospel. So the loud sound, the loud sound caught the attention of the people. And when they heard the common uneducated Galileans declaring praises to God, not in Aramaic, but in their own native languages. Needless to say, when they heard that, that caught their attention as well. And it didn't just get their attention. It didn't just get their attention. They were astounded. The people were astounded. They were blown away. And they were perplexed. While all were amazed and perplexed, Luke tells us that some in the crowd mocked the disciples. They mocked the disciples and they accused them of being drunk, which brings us to our text today. The apostle Peter heard this accusation. He heard this accusation that he and indeed all of the 120 were drunk. And here's how he responded. Verse 14. Please look there. But Peter, but Peter standing with the 11, lifted up his voice. And addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And if you see the footnote in your Bible, you'll see it says, which was 9 a.m. So here, Peter says, basically, I realize that to the crowd, he says, I realize that some of you think that we're all drunk and out of our minds. (laughs) And that's why all this is happening. But you need to know, Peter said, that is not what's going on here. No one here is drunk, Peter says. It's 9 o'clock in the morning, he tells them. And let's be honest, who gets drunk at 9 o'clock in the morning? Even Eagles fans, tailgating on Sunday mornings, they wait a little longer than 9 a.m. to do their thing. So no one is drunk. Furthermore, Peter says, there actually is, there actually is some good, solid, biblical rationale and explanation for all that you're seeing, for what's happening here. 
There are solid biblical reasons for this phenomenon that you are now seeing. Peter then gave those reasons from the Scriptures, from the Old Testament Scriptures. And how did the crowd respond? Well, 3,000, we just read it moments ago, 3,000 repented of their sins, were baptized, and added to the church. Amazing. Amazing. In the remainder of our time, here's what I want to do. Following Peter's own outline, I want to unpack and explain the two main reasons Peter gives for the remarkable and unusual phenomena at Pentecost. And then I will seek to answer the question, what does a right response to the events of Pentecost look like? So if you're taking notes, my three headings are, it's real simple, reason number one for what they're seeing, reason number two, and then finally, our response. So reason, reason number one. Reason number one Peter gives for this phenomena, for the tongues, for the rushing wind, all, all that they're seeing. Reason number one, a new era had dawned. In verse 17, the apostle Peter quotes directly from the Old Testament book of Joel. He quotes from Joel 2, verses 28 to 32. Look in verse 17 with me. And in the last days it shall be, God declares. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I want to stop right there for a second. What is the explanation for what happened at Pentecost? What is the reason for the rushing wind? What is the reason for the tongues of fire? What is the reason for... The outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Well, it's this, Peter says. We have just entered into a new time period. A new era. A new epoch in redemptive history known as the last days. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Hebrews 1, verse 2. Many believers today, when they think of the last days mistakenly think the last days began only recently, while still others think that the last days, they're, they're out there in the future and they're still yet to come. But there's a problem with both of those views. There's a problem with them because biblically, the era in history called the last days spans the entire time frame between the first and the second comings of Christ. The last days, biblically, began with the first coming of Christ and will end, they will conclude, at the second coming of Christ. And the outpouring of the Spirit, which took place at Pentecost, Peter tells the crowd, was the necessary consequence of the fact that with the coming of Jesus Christ into the world, the last days had now begun. Verse 17. Verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Here Peter tells his original audience, and us as well, 
that the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost signaled that a new era had dawned. With the coming of Christ, the last days foretold by the prophet Joel had arrived. They had broken onto the scene. Last week, Jeremy talked some about the new covenant age. To be clear, in Scripture, the last days, the era of the last days, parallels the new covenant age. The new covenant age and the last days go together. The new covenant age takes place in the last days. Under the old covenant given through Moses, God poured out his spirit. He did at times. He usually did it on a, on a few people. Prophets, kings, priests, judges, others on special occasions. Yet even Moses, Moses himself longed for a day. He longed for a day when the Holy Spirit would be more broadly poured out. He declared prophetically, I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets. I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Numbers 11.29. Wonderfully, Moses' prophetic longing was fulfilled at Pentecost. Pentecost marked the beginning of the last days and the dawn of a new age. The new covenant age, the age of the Spirit. The age of the Holy Spirit poured out. Prior to Pentecost, the disciples were what you might call old covenant believers. They did not yet have the new covenant fullness of the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost was a huge transition point both in redemptive history and for the 120 disciples personally. At Pentecost, these old covenant believers were baptized with the Holy Spirit, and they all thereby became new covenant believers. I used the term baptism with the Holy Spirit just then because in chapter 1, verse 6, Jesus told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem. For what? What were they to wait for? They were to wait for, he says, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And that's exactly what happened at Pentecost. At Pentecost, the 120 disciples were baptized with the Holy Spirit. And at that time, they received the new covenant empowering of the Holy Spirit that we here today receive at conversion. Now, some of you know that, uh, that our dear Pentecostal brothers and sisters use the phrase baptism with the Holy Spirit a little differently. They use it to refer to the experience some Christians have of being powerfully filled with the Holy Spirit and then speaking in tongues. Because no Christian today is an old covenant believer needing to come into the new covenant work of the Spirit, that that at least raises this question. Is baptism in and with the Holy Spirit the best phrase to describe what happens when someone today is filled with the Spirit and then speaks in tongues? Now, as a pastoral team, Jeremy and I, we very much believe that these experiences do do genuinely take place, and they're wonderful. 
when we receive the when we receive the filling of the Holy Spirit, all kinds of wonderful things happen. The Lord delights to give spiritual gifts and minister us when that happens. Sometimes He gives the gift of tongues, and we we rejoice when that happens. Uh, but our opinion, as we've studied the issue, is that baptism in or with the Holy Spirit is just probably not the best or most helpful phrase to describe those experiences. Uh, Because, again, we're not Old Covenant believers becoming New Covenant believers receiving this new work of the Spirit. When we become Christians, we're part of the New Covenant already. We receive the Spirit in its fullness right from the get-go. So it's probably better when someone receives the gift of tongues just to say that they were filled with the Spirit of God. God gave them the gift of tongues and then just leave it at that. Um, And if you... If you have any questions on that subject or if you'd like to talk about it more or if you have a different perspective, um, please don't hesitate to talk to Jeremy or myself. We'd love to talk with you. Briefly, you'll notice here that within the context of still speaking of these last days, Joel's prophetic utterance cited in verse 20 speaks of some some interesting things here. It speaks of the sun turkey turning to darkness. Do you see that there in the text? Sun turning to darkness, the moon turning to blood, and the day of the Lord. Um, Just to make you aware, there's a lot of debate among scholars about what verse 20 is actually referring to. Some think it refers to the events of the cross. Others think that it refers to events later to take place at the end of the age. Personally, uh, my take is um, I agree with John Calvin who says that verse 20 uses symbolic poetic language to refer in a general way to expressions of God's judgment on unbelievers that take place in this era, that take place in the last days between the first and the second coming of Christ. You know, when when unbelievers ridicule Christ, which happens when they reject Christ, when they oppose Christ, we need to know that that invites God's judgment in various ways, even before the final judgment, which takes place at the very end. One simply cannot oppose Christ and just get away with it indefinitely without at some point beginning to experience the devastating consequences. That's sobering to, to consider, isn't it? Because that's, that's unbelievers that we know. Um, that's family members, relatives, neighbors who don't know Jesus or walking in rebellion against him. If they don't repent, they will experience judgment at the end, but um, typically judgment just isn't just at one point. It, it comes in, in different points. And that just should just motivate us, I think. You know, thank you, John, for, for what you shared. It should motivate us to faithfully proclaim Christ, to love our neighbors, and to share the gospel with them because, you know, we deserve judgment too, right? But isn't it good news? to know God disciplines those he loves, but because of Jesus, you know, we're not going to experience, we don't experience God's, God's judgment. Um, so let's be praying for our, those who don't know the Lord and, and use this as a motivation. Verse 20 is a motivation to, to share the love of Christ with them. In the last days, while some will experience God's judgment, I love verse 21 because in verse 21 you see the opposite. Verse 20 is judgment, but 21 is the opposite. It's great blessing. 
All right, this again is additional motivation for sharing the gospel. And it shall come to pass. What does it say? Verse 21. Say it out loud. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that was a little weak. Let's try it again, all right? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a wonderful truth. Every, when we call upon the name of Jesus, he delights to rescue and to redeem and to save. So to sum up verses 14 to 21, Pentecost inaugurated a new era, the new covenant era, as Jeremy taught last week, the era of the Spirit poured out, which, and that's, that's what explains, that's part of what explains the unusual phenomena that the large crowd witnessed at Pentecost. And we also have seen here that this era, the, the last days, the new covenant age, are characterized by both God's judgment, which comes periodically on people who don't know the Lord, and God's blessing as well. And that brings us to the second reason that Peter gives for the phenomena of the crowd witnessed that day at Pentecost. So, second point, reason number two, King Jesus, King Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. King Jesus sent the Holy Spirit. After citing Joel's prophecy, the Apostle Peter began to address the, the crowd regarding the person and work of Jesus Christ. He, along with the 120 disciples, he had said to them, we're not drunk as you suppose. Instead, something else was going on here. And part of that something else was what? New era in history, era the Spirit poured out. But there's an additional something else. And that something else is not really something else, it's someone else. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one who poured out the Holy Spirit on the disciples at Pentecost. The rushing wind, the tongues of fire. It was the Holy Spirit sent by none other than Jesus himself. So uh, theologians say, Acts 2, it's high Christology. That just means it, it, it exalts Christ. So in verse 22, you just see Peter taking the spotlight and boom, <laughs> puts it right on Jesus. And so he just starts off by reminding his hearers of Jesus of Nazareth, how these people that he was pre now preaching to, how they had witnessed him perform all kinds of signs and wonders. Then in verse 23, Peter lovingly and boldly rebukes them, saying, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, <laughs> you crucified. <laughs> Imagine the boldness that took. <laughs> you crucified. You crucified. And killed by the hands of lawless men. Isn't his boldness, Peter's boldness, amazing here? That could have gotten him in a whole ton of trouble. That could have gotten him killed. To say that. Yet he went ahead and preached boldly that, that they had sinned by killing the Son of God. As you well know, the gospel we preach is inherently offensive. And it is certainly not politically correct. The gospel that we proclaim and that we believe, it does not shrink back from calling sin, sin. And you just see here, Peter didn't hesitate, did not hesitate to say, 
you did this, and this was wrong. I think there's, there's, that's a real example for us. In the days ahead, may God help us to boldly and compassionately, with love in our hearts, proclaim the good news of salvation, um, even if it proves costly to us. And I did appreciate Pastor John Niederhaus's word to us some weeks back when he preached, where he just encouraged us to, to be prepared for that, because the day may be coming when it is particularly costly to preach uh, some of the sharp edges of the gospel that talk about uh, sin and talk about God's judgment. Notice also how in this same t- sentence, simultaneously, the Apostle Peter affirms both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility in the crucifixion of Jesus. Peter had absolutely no difficulty simultaneously affirming, looking at them in the eye and saying, you did this. And then also saying, it was all according to God's plan. Some say that God cannot be fully sovereign and at the same time man be fully responsible for his actions and his choices. They make God's sovereignty out to be the bitter enemy of man's responsibility. In their minds, if God is fully sovereign... Well, then we're just, we're just robots, and we can't be held accountable by God for our actions. The problem is that that's just, not a, that's just not in the Bible. That's just not a biblical perspective. In Scripture, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, <laughs> they don't go at it, all right? They, they don't fight. Instead, they are good friends that get along quite nicely. While we cannot fully comprehend how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility go together, we can't fully comprehend it. We do well to remember that Scripture upholds them both, and God is God. And we are not. We do well to humbly acknowledge with Moses that the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Secret things belong to him. That is, there are some things about the infinite God of the universe that are a mystery to us. God understands them, and that should be enough for us. You know, we're finite creatures. You know, in math, you can't do anything with infinity. You can't divide it. You can't multiply it. You know, God is infinite. And isn't it a rational thought to think that that which is finite can't fully comprehend that which is infinite? Sometimes in our theologizing and our trying to understand God, we arrive at a point where we just fall to the ground. We feel our smallness, don't we? We just say, God, I don't understand. This is who you say you are. But you're God, and I'm not, and we, and we just rest. In verse 23, the apostle Peter holds the crowd responsible for their participation in the death of Jesus. He says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. So they killed Jesus. But that's not the whole story, is it? Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter then goes, to, goes on to quote from Psalm 16, where King David prophesied the resurrection of, of our Lord. Did you know that? David prophesied the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 27. This is David. 
For you will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is the realm of death. You will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. In verse 29, Peter says to the crowd essentially that when David spoke these words, he couldn't have possibly been speaking about himself. Because he's looking at the crowd and they all knew that David was dead, that he was buried, and that, in fact, David's tomb was, was still with them. David's tomb in that day, in the first century, was a thing that they could actually go see. So Peter says to the crowd, there's no way that David was referring to himself in Psalm 16 when he spoke these words. Instead, verse 30, Peter says that because David was a prophet, and because David knew God's promise to one day set one of David's own descendants on Israel's throne forever, that in Psalm 16, David wasn't speaking about himself. He was speaking about Christ. Christ was the one, verse 31, God had not abandoned to Hades, and whose flesh did not see corruption. Christ, verse 2, was the one who had mightily risen from the dead. And this brings us full circle in verse 33 to the main point that Peter has been trying to make all along to his hearers. He says, verse 33, please look there with me. This is really, super, this is really important. He says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he, that is Jesus, has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So, you see what, you see what Peter is saying? The rushing wind, the things you're seeing, the tongues of fire, He's back to his initial point. It wasn't, it wasn't drunkenness. Not drunk as you suppose. Rather, what they were seeing was the resurrected, ascended Jesus who from his throne at the right hand of God on the day of Pentecost poured forth the Holy Spirit. And he didn't just, it wasn't just like a trickle or a drop. He poured it out in abundance. In verse 34, Peter further ex- explains, for David did not ascend into the heavens. <laughs> right? David didn't go up. By the way, this is a great example of expository preaching, what Peter's doing here. He's just expositing Old Testament texts and saying, here's how they... Here's the apply. So one of the reasons we do expository preaching is because we, th- we think it's biblical, biblical and we're trying to follow Peter's model here. So first he's expositing Joel 2, and then here's Psalm 16, and we're going to see he's in Psalm 110 in a few minutes. So in verse 34, Peter further explains what happens. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a, a footstool. So that's, that's the Psalm 110. He's, Peter's quoting Psalm 110.1. And, and so what's, what's David saying? Well, just, just track this with me for a minute. The Lord, who is God the Father, said to David's Lord, said to David's Lord, who was the Messiah King yet to come. So that's Jesus. So the Father said 
to Jesus, sit at my right hand. So what's the right hand of God? It's the place of ultimate authority and power in the universe. Sit at my right hand until such a time as I make all of your enemies a footstool. Did you know that Psalm 110.1 is the most referred to Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament? It's all over the place. Yet to be honest with you, it is a verse that I, uh, I feel that I've only really begun to grasp what it's saying over the course of the last year or so as I've studied it. I have to tell you, understanding Psalm 110.1 has had an unexpected effect, an unanticipated effect on my soul. It has really encouraged me. It has lifted my spirits because it has helped me to see that scripturally I have more reason than I once thought for joyful optimism regarding the gospel's success in the world before the second coming of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15.25, the Apostle Paul refers to Psalm 110.1 when he says this, and I think we have this for you on the screen. For he must reign... Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Here the apostle helps us to see that the enemies of Christ are progressively subdued over time until the last enemy, which is death, is destroyed. Now, of course, that does not mean there is constant victory for the Christian church. There are always periods of increase and periods of decline, periods of persecution as well. But what Psalm 110.1 does mean, what it does mean, and here's the take-home point for me, what it does mean is that I have good, solid, biblical reason, good, solid, biblical reason to be optimistic about the advance of God's kingdom here on earth, even when... Even when the news feed on my phone might indicate otherwise. What Psalm 1101 does mean is that I can wake up every morning and know, without a shadow of a doubt, that I'm on the winning side because I'm on Christ's side. What it does mean is that Christ is on his throne now. He is building his church and the gates of hell will not ever prevail against it. So the big picture here in Acts 2 is the last days is an era in redemptive history marked by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's the last days, this era is marked by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit Not just a Pentecost, but now. And the Father progressively subduing the enemies of Christ our King. And what's so cool is how what happened next illustrated the very point. What happened next in the narrative illustrated the very point that that Peter was making. So third point, how should we respond? How should we respond to the truth that the crucified, risen Christ is King of all, who gives the good gift of the Holy Spirit. Let's look again at the text. After citing Psalm 110.1, Peter exclaimed, verse 36, 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In response, we read in verse 37, the people came under conviction. They realized that they did do this. They did crucify the Lord. They realized who Jesus was. Not just some ordinary man, but he's, he's the God of all. He's at the right hand of God. They, 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 they suddenly, it was like they got it. They knew what had happened. They were cut to the heart, the text. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said, brothers, what shall we do? What, what shall we do? And Peter's answer to them was, was repent. His, his answer to them was to repent. It was to receive God's forgiveness. Repent, he says, receive God's forgiveness and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So how should we respond to the truth that the crucified, risen Christ is king of all? Who gives the good gift of the Holy Spirit? How should we respond? Peter's answer, repent so that we can receive the Holy Spirit. I would like to ask the band to join me. If you're someone here and that's you, you've not yet done that, you've not yet repented of and turned from your sin, if you've not yet yielded your life to the rule and to the reign of Jesus Christ, I appeal to you on the authority of God's word. Please do so today. Do so without delay. Ask Christ to forgive you. Ask him to forgive you of all the ways that you've sinned against him, of all the ways that you've disobeyed his laws and commands and lived for yourself instead of him. Ask him to forgive you. Receive his forgiveness. Turn from your sin. Receive God's good gift of eternal life and receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Holy Spirit as well. For the rest of us who've already done done that, and I know that's most here, as an application of this text, I just want to encourage you in this way. Rejoice. Rejoice. Rejoice at the miracle of grace that your life is. Rejoice that the Holy Spirit has regenerated your heart causing you to be born again from above. Rejoice that you live in the era of the Spirit poured out and that you have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling inside of you. Rejoice that Christ your King is reigning over all things, ensuring that the Great Commission will be accomplished. It will be fulfilled. The promise. The promise of the Father The promise of the Holy Spirit, Peter said, it's for you and it's for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. It's no small thing. It is no small thing for a person to have the Holy Spirit living inside of them. So I appeal to you, all of you, please don't minimize the significance of the fact that you have the Holy Spirit. Please don't minimize 
how God wants to use you personally and specifically for His glory. Please don't limit the size of your dreams and ambitions to be used by your God to your own assessment of your strengths and your weaknesses. You have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. So allow Him to fill you today. Allow Him to fill you. Allow Him to fill you with a fresh. Afresh. Ephesians 5 were command to be filled with the Spirit. It's in the present tense. It means again and again and again we come. So ask Him to fill you. Ask Him to strengthen you. And then offer yourself to the Lord. Allow Him to use you for His namesake, for His glory and the advance of his kingdom. Amen. Let's stand together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for how you're at the right hand of God. Thank you for how you have poured forth the Holy Spirit. Thank you for how you continue to do that. Lord, we put our hope and trust in you this day. In Jesus' name, amen.